Blog Talk Radio. here in Tempe, Arizona. The weather is outstanding. This is the reason why we moved to Arizona, today's weather. All right, we have a great guest for us today. We're very excited to have him here. He's going to talk about his new book. Our guest is a lifelong educator, a former scientific researcher, and provocative fantasy author, rising from humble beginnings in a rural economically disadvantaged county in Florida, but he skyrocketed to academic success. He earned his PhD, get this, at a youthful 24. How cool is that, right? I special guest says his journey has taught him that even in the face of adversity, reinvention and a power of storytelling holds the key to unlocking new horizons. Let's welcome to the show our special guest, Jonathan N. Pewitt. Thanks so much for having me. I'm uh, excited to be part of your show, and thanks for the great introduction. I'm excited to chat with you and your listeners. All right. Thank you for joining us. And again, it's so, it's so impressive. A PhD at 24. I was just happy to get my <laughs> actions degree at 24. So oh. good for you. That, that's awesome, man. Um, just before we get started, please tell us a little more about yourself and your new book, sir. Uh, let's see. So I am a uh, Floridian native, and I have lived all over the world, uh, formerly studying spiders and everywhere from South Africa to Namibia to Central and South America to Indonesia and Australia. And, uh, you know, a few years ago, I decided to hunker down and try to chip away at what was a lifelong dream of trying to write a fantasy novel. You know, like like lots of little kids, I grew up thinking, like, you know, like Lord of the Rings and... Um, and the Golden Compass and Chronicles of Narnia were fascinating. And that, those, that sort of genre, that fantasy genre, was what was able to convince a pretty young and energetic child like myself into reading sometimes great tomes of fantasy. And so I thought, you know, one day I would like to try my hand at that as well. And, you know, an opportunity showed up a couple of years ago to, to uh, begin to try to crack away at one of those goals. And it took a long, long time, you know, about a, a year to draft the book uh, and then another two or three years of editing it. And the product of that, uh, that effort was the first of, the, of a series, uh, The Amber Manier, which debuts in uh, about 11 days now. It debuts October 3rd. And uh, it's the first in a series uh, called The Shadows of the Monolith. And that uh, the series is a dark fantasy series, so, you know, it doesn't shy away from themes like, um, like sex and uh, dangerous outcomes and violence, but it also doesn't luxuriate in them. But the book is about um, a series of magical schools that are filled with intellectuals that are almost vampiric in nature. And so they live off of the life of those outside of the school, the general populace, uh, but they have to because these vampiric intellectuals are devising new kinds of magic, critical kinds of magic, that promise to save existence from could-be destruction. 
So we follow three young people into that world and find out that not everything inside of these schools, the Meniers, is as they first ex uh, expect, and that if you step out of line, that there could be dangerous consequences. You know, Jonathan, again, so articulate, so educationally strong. Was your education, your reading, or your get yourself in a corner and kind of put yourself away, was that your outlet for being uh, in an economically disadvantaged county? Because I know for me, being in a in very low-income family, mine was sports. Mm -hmm. I played sports. That kept me yeah. out of trouble. It kept me focused. It kept me. <laughs> was that the same thing with you when it came to education? Yeah, you know, I mean, I certainly I viewed I viewed education as my ticket out, right? So like everyone who was in my circumstances was trying to find a way out of out of where we started in life, and so and and, and which was a which was a middling hand. And for me, hunkering down and trying to focus on my academics and take that seriously, I figured that was probably my best shot of getting out and, and trying to and trying to make something of myself. Although I should say, I still have managed to get into plenty of <laughs> trouble. So I'm not going to say that it got me out of trouble. I'll just say normally it meant that the trouble could be, <laughs> could be circumvented if I was just squirrely or foxy enough. And, you know, thankfully so, some wits are helpful there too. <laughs> Outstanding. Outstanding. Okay, how does your book hold up to a mirror in real life? So you write the book, uh, your newest novel. How is it kind of mirror what your life is all about well you know i mean i've, I've always i mean since i was a child i mean I've, even now i'm still a teacher so like you know throughout my whole life i've been in schools right and i've always i've always been in academia in one form or another and i've seen the wonderful things about it and i've also seen some of the dark elements about the ivory tower over the course of my life and so i thought no matter if I, it, whether i wrote a fantasy novel in the last year or last few years or whether i'd written it when i was in my early 20s which is some time ago now, but uh, it would have it would have featured schools. And I my favorite parts about fantasy are the bad guys, right? Like I, as a child, I was always interested in the Disney villains. I'm much more intrigued by Ursula than I am about poor Ariel. <laughs> so like I wanted to populate my books with like these oozing, unctuous, um, manipulative uh, bad guys that you know they, they all each have tendrils of good in them as well. But you know they're they're not they're not Girl Scout leaders. <laughs> So I like those characters. And so I populated my books with sort of um, uh, dramatized versions of dark personality types that I've seen in various um, academic settings over the, course of my, over the course of my years, including some of my own character flaws. And so, so while there's no autobiographical characters in the strictest sense, it's not like, it's not like one of the main characters is me and so-and-so you know, so -and -so is over there. But, you know, I would say there's a little bit of all sorts of people and experiences over the course of my life that are echoed or turned inside out in these books. And I think it makes them more fun. It makes them more realistic. And so the hope is, and I think I, I, I hope I succeed, that, that when folks read it, they'll remember some of their best teachers and some of their worst teachers and some of the things that they suspected were the worst of their teachers um, playing out before their, before their eyes in these books. And that we'll see a little bit of ourselves, a little bit of our world, um, if things had gone just a bit more awry on these pages. Outstanding. Hey, can I explain to us, uh, kind of tell us what the title of your book is, and then tell us what the title of your book means. Ah, uh, yeah. So the title for the book here is The Amber Meneer. So the, as in like the article, like <laughs> the cat in the hat, uh, the, and then amber, so like the, the fossilized stone of tree set. And then um, meneers, that's a weird word because we don't really have them so much here in the U.S. But <laughs> meneers, 
or M-E-N-H-I-R. And meniers are just weird standing stones. So, like, sometimes, like, they're common in Western Europe. Stonehenge and things like that are meniers. So, like, in the middle of this, like, field where, you know, there's no evidence that there's a civilization, you'll get this weird cut stone that's, that could be huge just standing up in the middle of nowhere. And although there's almost no other evidence of a society having existed there, you'll see these monolithic stones that someone erected somehow at some point in our past, and they're quite mysterious. And historians and scholars fight a lot about when these stones were erected and how they were erected and what sorts of, what sorts of technologies were used. And so they become sort of a, a topic of both, both mystery and intrigue and are sort of haunting in many ways. So, cause, you know, so whatever, whoever that civilization was, they're not around anymore. <laughs> and so yeah. I try to – I actually name my schools in these books after the Meniers. So, like, just like those haunted, suspicious stones in our real world, these towering um, academic institutions inside of my books are called the Meniers. And one of them is the Amber Meniere, which is the one that we spend the most time in in the first book. Outstanding. Okay. You mentioned the concept of world building and why he says this can be dangerous. So kind of explain to you oh, why yeah. – that's dangerous. Go ahead. Oh, well, you know, okay, so I mean, most, most, and, 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 you know, and this is just one opinion, so for, for, this is my first book, so you can, you can feel free to tell me, like, you have no idea what's going on. You're totally wrong, and I, and I, and I can accept that. <laughs> so, like, but, you know, I, I've known many people who want to write fantasy novels. You know, I, I've played elaborate board games with people over the course of my life that feature fantasy elements. I have many friends who, who read as extensively or more as I do in the fantasy genre, and, you know, what really intrigues us about those, about those stories are the worlds they create. You know, like there are elves and there are kings and there are dwarven forges and all, and all these other elements. And, and it, I get that these worlds are what, are what intrigue people in the end, and especially when they're so detailed. But this of world building doesn't necessarily begin to weave you a story. So, you know, you might have a fascinating world filled with interesting gods that play funny games and, you know, kings and queens or, you know, dark sorcerers or whatever – but people are intrigued first and foremost by characters, by conflict, and by, by stories that we can relate to. So world building is a wonderful thing to do when you're writing fantasy, and I think it's a healthy exercise. But doing a ton of world building I think can distract authors who are interested in writing from focusing on a story, focusing about a character or a small number of characters, and what's their journey going to be? Because in the end, the way that you're going to that you're going to lure like like a fish, lure, lure readers into reading your book is that you're going to you're going to make a story about somebody. And that and that story is going to be as true even in the context of a fantasy as it was somebody's real life. It has to be kind of a struggle that we can identify with. And so you give them a story first, attention first, a character first that they can uh, identify with or hate even. That's okay too. Have them hate a character. And then slowly but surely you introduce small elements of the broader world. So, like, if I try to write a textbook about my world, no one's going to read that. But if I write a character that has an issue with their parents, we can all identify that. <laughs> even, if even if your parents are saints, they drive you crazy. And so, and so you know, I, I tried to start off with small human interest elements and a, and a, and a, and a character-driven um, story and then slowly pepper in elements of world building so that I'm not telling you about the evolutionary ecology of the lizards in my world <laughs> before I get to um, the first character. So world building's great, but 
little bits at a time are important for the reader so they don't get overwhelmed. And then if you spend all of your time world building, there's, there's the danger that you might never actually write the story. And, and, and I think everyone has a story worth telling. Oh, yes. We all have stories. Okay, now you mentioned, and this is very powerful, and I like this a lot. You mentioned we all have a villain in someone's life. And if you don't <laughs> think you are, you're being naive. Now, to me, that's a bad thing. Okay, should, I, should somebody not like me, or do I want everybody to like me? And to me, I, I know people need both sides. And and, and mm-hmm. some days I teeter on either one. It's like, okay, you're just trying to have everybody like you, but some yeah. things just don't get done when everybody likes you. But then how much is yeah. how much is uh, being a villain where you kind of push people off? So kind of talk about that a little bit and what's the midpoint? What's the, what's a good mix? Because <laughs> I, don't really, I don't really mind not everybody liking me. I don't mind that. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Well, I mean, first of all, let's, let's start off with, although I think I am a, I, I, I'm, I'm a, an anti-hero at best personally. <laughs> so, yeah. so like, I think I'm, I think I'm the bad guy for plenty of people, which is hilarious because I spend most of my time and mental energy trying to make people happy and trying to like people please. But I, I often fail at that. So like, you know, I mean, even the most sycophantic people pleasers by instinct in the world, if you stand for anything or if you, or if you just make yourself visible, you're going to annoy someone. And the more you try at life, the more you make me, the more you're a try hard. It's actually, it's one of the funniest ways to insult somebody now. That person's a try hard. Like, <laughs> like, this is one of the most insulting things you can say about somebody right now. But if you try at anything, somebody's going to get annoyed with you. And so, you know, um, if you stand for something invariably, and it could be anything. It could be your own personal interest. It could be your family, whatever. You could try to be, try to get into traffic in a favorable way to get home a little bit earlier. Somebody just behind you that you cut off, you are their bad guy <laughs> for the next few minutes. And, you know, it's at, or at work, you know, there's only a limited amount of resources. So, you know, um, we all have a villain inside of us. And the reality is, is that you're going to be a different kind of person to different people, both in how they perceive you and how you begin to act towards them. So, like, you know, if I – there are some people in my life that I am almost angelic toward. They can do no wrong. I, I will – I expect nothing from them. And I will chase them down every single day and just try to make sure that they're okay. And then there are some people in my life that I'm completely callous to and I don't think about them at all. And if I do that for very long, those la- the people in the latter category will begin to view me as a villain. So I think if you stand for something, if you, if you make yourself visible, you have to just accept that you're going to annoy some people. And if you become a decision maker, oh, my God, then you're really going to be someone's bad guy. Because if you become a person that has to make decisions for groups of other people – there are always disagreements and there's always somebody unhappy with the outcome. And then not only have you become that person's vil- villain, you might become their long-term en- enemy. Your, your life might become the most interesting thing and theirs. And that is a very dangerous situation to be in. So luxuriate in the fact that you're a villain to somebody. You can't please everybody. And you know what? Being a villain is kind of fun. <laughs> well, said, accept- well, well said. Hey, before we continue with the questions, please tell us, where do we go to get this wonderful book when it gets released oh. in 11 days? Where do we go? Oh, anywhere and everywhere. So you can go on Amazon now and you can pre-order it. It's available in paperback and ebook and hardback. Um, it's also available in the same format on um, Barnes & Noble. It, you can go visit my website, theshadowsofthemonolith.com or just shadowsofthemonolith.com. They'll take you to the same place. And there are links to all of those venues there. You can also get it on Kobo. 
And the audiobook um, is being narrated by a, actually a pretty accomplished actress, Jeremy Lee, who's been in things like Pokemon and Street Fighter and uh, My Hero Academia and a bunch of anime and sci-fi genres across, across various contexts. So she's narrating the book. We just got her files in last night, the last of her files. So we should have audiobook, uh, the audiobook available on Audible in the next few weeks as well. So lots of venues, but not only can you find my book on theshadowsofthemodels.com, but you can find my other musings and supplementary writings and where I'm at in the sequels, which I've already drafted, but I'm editing all the time. It's wonderful. Hey, you know, this, your education and teaching is all part of what you do and is great. When was a wow mm. moment? When was a wow moment you said, okay, I'm going to start this novel and put my head down and go? Because I know you knew it wouldn't be easy and timely. Mm-mm. Oh, yeah. You said, I'm going to do this novel. What was there? If you think back, was there one where it hit you said, okay, now it's time to start? Oh, for sure. Okay, get ready. You're like, you want me to be a bad guy? Here's the bad guy moment. <laughs> I'm the world's most evil spider biologist. <laughs> Write that down. <laughs> I'm the world's most evil. And you'd imagine among spider biologists that I'd have a lot of competition, but I top the heap. <laughs> so wow. a few years ago, I was. I know, I know, I know, I know. I mean, like, as a child, the nine-year-old version of me would be so proud. I'll tell you, being the world's most infamous spider biologist isn't as much fun as I would have imagined at nine years old, but, you know, it's still pretty fun. Anyway, so, so a few years ago, I was uh, flying all over the world, intercepting tropical cyclones like hurricanes here or in East Africa or India or northern Australia, and I was basically flying around trying to intercept these tropical cyclones to see how spiders were preparing for these storms. You know, like, we have emergency alerts and people evacuate their houses and, you know, like, board up their windows. But um, it, spiders don't have any of that. <laughs> so, but, like, and spiders are still all over the place, right? So presumably they do something to prepare. Or, you know, I was interested in seeing what kinds of spiders prevailed in the aftermath of these storms, too. So, you know, I was flying all over the place, and a story broke. So out of, like, my 200 articles... They found copy and paste events and like, ooh, like maybe a couple of dozen, like 24 articles, and the internet lost its mind. <laughs> Twitter destroyed me. In like a couple of weeks, I was engulfed in so much controversy that that version of myself became completely imperiled. And so for a while, I was you know, collecting a paycheck and not able to do anything. And I was like, oh, my God, I'm not sure if I'm going to be a spider biologist again. I don't know if people are going to let me teach anymore. It was so, I mean, the controversy was overwhelming. I saw everything about what, you know, everything I loved about myself burned in, you know, a couple of weeks' time. And so I thought, well, uh, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? I have all this energy. And I, 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 I thrive off of interacting with people and feel like I'm producing something. I, feel, I, I have to always be building something to feel substantiated, justified as a person. And so I thought, okay, well, what do you do when people think that what you say next, whatever it is, is very likely to be a lie? And I'm like, well, it's pretty scary. And then I thought, well, I guess that's a bad situation unless what I do next is that I write something or build something that the very premise of it, the whole idea of it is that it's not true. It is false. It is fantasy. It is fictitious. And it is harmless. And so, you know, I've always loved fantasy, and I thought, well, if I write a fantasy novel and that leverages all of my weird experiences over the course of my life, I think I could at least write an interesting book and a dark one that's, fu- that's filled with dark jokes and wit and winks at everybody. And no one can say at the end that it's not true because, in fact, of course it's not true. It's a, it's a fantasy. 
And along the way, I found a lot of a lot of sort of I, I hate to say it therapy in writing it. It gave me something to do, something to build when another version of me was dying in real time. So you know, I in some ways, like a spider, I was watching one web collapse while I was trying to spin a new one as quickly as I could. And I'm very thankful for the process and actually for the writing community more broadly. I mean, lots of writers. Uh, were very supportive of me and editors and um, and literary agents, et cetera. They were all very, very, very helpful, constructive, and uh, helped to make a new version of me. Um, help help make that new version of me possible, and helped the 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 physical version of me survive long enough to get there. Outstanding. Hey, you know, I'm talking. I'm talking to you. I asked you a question about bridging the career. My past life in sports. It, I still utilize a lot of the training today, what I do today. So that kind of bridged my, you know, wh- you know, why I get up in the mornings, what I'm working for, overcoming negativity, overcoming self-doubt. Mm. My sports helps me continue and do things today. And if you mm. think about your former career in science, how is it bridging with your fantasy writing? How does that kind of play together to help you continue to be a great writer and have that, you know, that, Focus, do more books and more books and more books. How does that work? Well, on the one hand, uh, scientists, they're storytellers. Like the whole point of being a scientist is like, okay, you ask some questions, you develop some hypotheses, you run some studies, and then you collect the data. But then at the end, you have to say to the world what those data mean. You have to interpret them for people, and you have to you have to um, – you have to weave a story that's, that can be understood not just by fellow scientists but by people who, frankly, paid for it all. So, like, people have to understand where their money went, like, what, what went on. And so you're kind of a storyteller even as a scientist, although you're limited. Like, whatever the data say, whatever your, whatever your hypotheses were, that's going to structure your story. And so, you know, so there were some general best practices that occurred from, from being a writer, even if it was a nonfiction writer, for, you know, 15, 20 years that I've been able to use in the context of writing fantasy. Um, I also, you know, I'm used to being told no. <laughs> so um, being an academic, you submit a paper someplace, guess what? Three times out of four or nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, they're going to tell you no. And so, like, if you're used to being told no and get out of here a lot, then um, when you become a writer, guess what? You get told no a lot again. <laughs> so, like, I was like, I, I built up a pretty tough skin. I'm like, oh, this person doesn't want me, at least not right now. And I, th- that, that has almost no effect on me emotionally at all. I'm like, okay, I'll just go play the numbers and tell somebody else, I'll throw an idea, throw another idea, throw another idea. So, frankly, just having a thick skin and being used to being told no is, uh, is, 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 is part of both versions of myself, and I'm, I'm thankful for that, too. And, you know, and then lastly, my whole book, all my books feature basically evil vampiric scholars that are manipulating each other and in, this, in these fictitious towers of learning. And, you know, it's not that dissimilar <laughs> from real life. And so, you know, I, I've seen not just stories that happened to me, but stories of what happened to tons of other people you know, that are both wonderful and terrible and everything in between. And I've seen a lot of fights over almost nothing between academics. And so I thought, oh, my God, this is just too much. And now that I'm no longer part of it, it's, it's, they're almost comical in, in, their, in, in how severe some of those um, political games can be over almost nothing. 
And so I thought, I'm going to write some books about this. This is fabulous. And, and frankly, it's been successful in acquiring my books more attention. You know, tens of thousands of academics have already weighed in or mentioned or looked at my book because they knew who I was and they know what I'm writing. And so, frankly, even though the old version of me is, you know, in quotation marks, dead, mm-hmm. almost every part of it has found a new home where it's been repurposed, retooled in a new context. And, and frankly, I know this sounds terrible, but, like, I think I like the new version of myself even better. And I'm glad it didn't all end. Outstanding. Jonathan, you so much fun. I love it. Love it. Okay. Um, I'm going to go back to your book a little bit. Uh, sure. you, you, your book carries some powerful things. Could you give us some mm. insight to messages you wanted to convey to the, to the, to the readers of your book? Sure. You some powerful things. Kind of give us a little bit of tidbits about what you want to convey to us. Yeah. Well, I mean, so there are a lot of dark bits of humor, like, you know, vampiric intellectuals drinking everybody's blood to go <laughs> to go research more magic. I mean, it's not that dissimilar from real life. <laughs> you are politically. But, so like, but, you know, that's on the nose. But really, I, I brush past that pretty fast and focus on more human interest elements. But these, these scholars inside of my books, everyone involved, every single major POV uh, point of view inside of the book um, is doing something that has face value. You know, maybe they're maybe when you first see them, they're killing somebody, or maybe when you first see some see them, they're stealing something, or maybe the first time you see them, they're they're experimentally breeding fellow human beings. And at face value, when you first see these characters, you're like, oh my god, how repulsive! Like I can't believe they're doing this. Blah blah blah. You're, you, could, you could be outraged, but then slowly, I try to get you to know these characters enough that what you see, what they're doing, is usually based on very sound reasoning. And so almost every side of every political issue inside of my book are, are operating using logic, sound arguments that make good sense based on their perspective. But that doesn't mean that they're not capable of doing evils. Every single character there you will see do something evil, objectively. But in that moment, in that context, based on who they are and what they've seen, will make good sense. And that's part of, that's part of the warning of the books is that – even superb logic, the most sound, um, level-headed sort of reasoning can take anyone, if it's left unchecked, into dangerous circumstances. It can be done in the name of logic and reason for the collective betterment of society very swiftly and in and, and lots of ways. And so we get to see those, those, frankly, those follies, those mistakes that individuals are doing if, if their philosophies are left unchecked, the, the, the vampiric intellectuals in my world, they're easy to make fun of. They're sort of, they're sort of like they're almost, they're almost comically evil. But, um, but what they're doing and the reason that they're doing it makes pretty good sense from their perspective. It might make sense from the, from the global perspective. It's just that doesn't mean that it's good. And, and everyone who's trying to make the world a utopia has to remember that your idea of a utopia, your idea of the perfect future, it's probably not my idea, and it's probably not some of your closest friends' ideas either. And if we let you devise the perfect world without hearing other views, without having other views press against yours and try to, and try to make a balance, then, then you're, you're going to become a, a, a dictator. You're going to create a world that's going to become a dystopia for others, that's going to harm them on the whole, psychologically or physically. So I try to show reason is still dangerous if it's left unchecked, and that any character, any person in real life's idea of a perfect future is almost assuredly not the utopia of somebody next to you. And so 
you have to be mindful of that. Beautiful. Hey, Jonathan, who's your favorite author? Who do you read? Uh, let's see. I mean, I read very broadly, right? So, like, uh, N.K. Jemison, I was reading her Broken Earth series just before um, I was writing my writing my books. Um, uh, so she, so she, um, the Broken Earth series is is, is almost uh, a masterclass in storytelling and world building. Uh, China Neville, he's like uh, this. I think he's I think he's British. Maybe he's Australian. I don't know. Anyway, he he looks British. I hope he doesn't get offended by that. He looks British. <laughs> like, he has a lot of triangles. <laughs> he looks British, but he writes you know very weird um, sort of intellectualized views of um, of sci-fi. Uh, you know, and then I, I wouldn't be a science fiction writer if it weren't for classic people. You know, like. Tolkien or C.S. Lewis or Carol Lewis or even J.K. Rowling, you know, like I feel like she gets beaten up a lot these days. And, you know, I'm not going to weigh in whether or not I think that is based on strong grounds. But we have to remember that a lot of, especially if you're writing about schools and magic, as I am, you have to accept that she, she wrote some really great books that have brought a lot of people joy. And so I'm thankful for her contributions as well. And so I I read lots of people. I, it, my blood sugar will determine which kind of author I like best. It also will determine how optimistic I am, and those two things will be linked to each other. Outstanding. What's in the future? Uh, oh. Well, no, I think that no, I think that back because you, you know, you, <laughs> the series. So yeah, we know you have books. Are when this book is out there making great sales, are you taking some downtime, or are you just you're in the groove now and you're ready to go? Oh. And you're going to keep on writing. How's it oh, God. Yeah. Well, okay, so here's a cop-out answer first, <laughs> So, <laughs> which is here's some, here, I'll give you my cop-out answer first, and then I'll give you a real answer. My cop-out answer is I don't know my future after this weekend, and I don't want to, which is actually okay. a Bjork lyric, so, like, don't, like, 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 don't, don't take that at face value. Okay, so, so but um, beyond that, I would say, um, uh, yeah, I'm going to keep writing these books. You know, I, I, I teach Catholic minors about biology during the day. In fact, I have a little monk. One of my, I, have, I have lots of monk friends these days. <laughs> one, of my, one of my little monk friends is watching my classroom right now while I have this, while I have this uh, conversation and walk the track. I know, it's, it's so cute. The monks are so adorable. Also, the monks have disagreements and politics as well. So it's just once, I mean, the fact that monks are having political disagreements inside of their house lets you know that how instinctual it is. I will continue to write books, I think. Um, there's a New York Magazine profile piece coming out about me, which is a really big venue. It seems like, you know, like somewhere between 5 and 8 million people will read that profile piece. And it's going to make me a combination of light and shadow, which is true. So I'm excited to see how that goes. But, you know, if the sales take off, then... At the end of this year, I'll probably revert to full-time writing and editing, for that matter. In fact, I think helping other people with their stories could be even more rewarding than writing my own. I mean, I, I do love helping other people, and uh, and, I, and I think it takes just a little bit of encouragement to pull the best kinds of stories and narratives out of others. So I think I'll probably help edit as well. And if the book does just so-so, then I'll probably continue to teach Catholic minors about biology, which sounds illegal but is not. And then, um, <laughs> you <know like> that? <laughs> and then, uh, and, you know, we'll, we'll see where my life goes from there. So, but yeah, if the, if, if the book, if the book's sore, then probably full-time editing and writing. And if the books sort of are, have a gentler, <laughs> gentler kind of success, then, uh, I'll continue to uh, teach kids about biology and tell them about the other aspects of the life that, of this world that I love and, and, uh, and sort of split the difference. They have the two versions of me continue forward in their own way, holding hands. Outstanding. 
we're going to have more of you in the classroom. That's outstanding. Okay, before we get to the final comments, sir, please tell us again, where do we go after the show? Order your wonderful <laughs> okay, so The Amber Manier can be found on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and Kobo and a lot of other outlets. If you just put in shopping, The, T-H-E, Amber, A-M-B-E-R, Manier, M-E-N-H-I-R, you can find it available for pre-order. It's, it debuts in 11 days. And um, uh, you can go to my website, uh, theshadowsofthemonolith.com, or just shadowsofthemonolith.com. Find links there of where to buy the book and supplementary information about me and the world and the characters and um, the various factions inside of these towers that fight with each other. So there's more enriching elements there. So, you know, pretty much anywhere you can find a book online, you can find my book. Outstanding. Final comment. I know you teach. I know you're in front of the classroom. You're very spunky. You get people fired up. You got me fired up. But mm-hmm. give some advice to aspiring authors, writers, to believe in themselves, oh. to let them know that, you know, even though they're going to have some bad days, they can have some bad reviews, pick themselves oh, up, keep on going. In closing, yeah. tell us your thoughts about that, sir. Yeah, I mean, oh, it only has to be accepted one time. <laughs> so when you're getting told no, 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 about anything, whether you're pitching your story, pitching your pitching, pitching yourself romantically at a bar, whatever <laughs> you're doing, you only have to get one yes most of the time to make to make the next stage start to happen. You'll need one literary agent to say yes, and and use each no as a learning opportunity. And maybe maybe it's, it's the the learning opportunity could be as simple as. No's are common, and you can't let them beat you up. Like, that's okay. Like, you're, you can survive this. And, and if, if people are kind enough or even ruthless enough to give you critiques, almost every critique somewhere inside of it, there is something you can act on. And so, like, give yourself some time. Go have an adult beverage if you need. Go have, go have five adult beverages if you need. Go on a long walk. Go play a game of tennis, whatever, to decompress. And then come back to those critiques and think, like, okay, is there anything I can do to tweak this book or tweak my narrative or tweak this character to make it slightly more um, consistent with their view or improve in some way that would make whatever that critique was a, a little less harsh or stick a little bit less? And so, you know, try to use every critique and every no as a learning experience to the degree that it can be. And, you know, you have every one of you has a story inside of you that's worth telling and that nobody else on earth can tell as well or even could tell uh, like you can. And so, um, yeah, just don't lose sight of that. That's not just a platitude. That's not just like a you-can-do-it-hang-in-there motivational poster in some guidance counselor's office. This is a real truism. So take that with you, and don't let them know beat you down. Outstanding. Jonathan, we had so much fun today. Thank you so much for sharing with oh, us. Such a pleasure. Yeah, you. you have a great weekend. We're going to follow you. We're going to market you. We're going to help promote you, get your book out there so we can do this full time. Jonathan, thank you so much from the Hollis Chapman Show and the listeners. And we'll talk to you real soon, sir. You guys have a good day. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. What a great guest that was, huh? Make sure you follow up with Jonathan and Pewitt, okay? What a great heart he has. What a great, you know, he's just got a great vision, great things for all of us. So you follow up, show him some love back, all right? The concept of world building. How does his book hold to mirror of real life? A lot of it does, you know. Uh, it, it, there's so many things that we can relate to in his writing. Uh, how form his characters from his everyday life. 
All that stuff's important. All that stuff's important to you when you do your book writing, when you do your speaking, when you do your building, building build your business. Excuse me, okay? Hey, what a great Friday it was. What a great way to end the week with him. We love it. Let's close it with a little music. everyone for listening. Make sure you follow up with Jonathan Ann Pewitt. Get his book. Follow up. Great stuff. Great storyteller. Outstanding. We all have stories to tell and be heard. And as always, I'll see you next time.